And while you're getting settled, I'm going to just tell you about this prayer guide that was on the seat when you came in. We handed this out at our Wednesday night worship night, last Wednesday, the Ash Wednesday worship service, which was a wonderful time of worship. And um, if you miss that, you won't want to miss it next year. But we, we handed out a, a prayer guide for Lent, this season that leads us up to the heart of our Christian faith, Good Friday and Easter. We want our church to be praying in this season, praying for our church, praying for our community, praying for our friends and neighbors and for the spread of the gospel. So take this with you. Use it in your personal devotional life. It will be a blessing to you. And, um, and with that, we'll get in our Bibles, get your bulletin out, get ready to take some notes. We're back in Luke chapter 6, and here's what I'm going to do. In order to get us ready to study Luke 6 this morning, I want to share with you one of my most priceless possessions. It's uh, something that hangs in my office that is incredibly precious to me. It's a piece of art. And I brought it with me today, and I'm going to show it to you. And the reason, one of the reasons it's so precious to me is that it was painted by someone who is precious to me, my wife, Kathy, who is an artist. And so, but I, here's the thing, I didn't ask for her permission to brag about her, so I'm going to be in a little bit of trouble. But it's okay, because this illustration is so great. I only thought of it this morning, but do you want to see my, my piece of art? You're like, don't do this, dude. This is not going to go well. No, I'm going to show it to you. Here it is. Here it is. I'm going to hold this up just for a minute so you can see it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that nice? Okay, let me tell you something. This hangs in my office right above my desk. And every time that I look up at this painting, it reminds me of the church. I see the church. I see you. And everything that's beautiful about the church all of the color, all of the, all of the differences that we have. We come into this place and we come with different gifts, different skills. We come from different backgrounds. Many of us have, have different levels of, of maturity in our Christian life. Some of us are brand new to faith. Some of us are leaders and we've been leading in the church. And we all come together and we're united together by the vision of an artist who ties the whole thing together. Isn't that neat? There's a place in 1 Peter where Peter says of the church, he says, you know what you are, individual Christian? You are like a living stone that Jesus has placed into the wall of the spiritual household of God. He described individual believers as living stones. That's what I see every time I look at this. And it reminds me, there is no place in the universe I would rather be than right here with you. Isn't that great? But I can tell you something. There's something else about this painting that you would never know if I didn't tell you. There is another painting underneath this painting. So when you're an artist, sometimes you'll paint something and then you'll step back and go, I'm not totally happy with how that turned out, okay? And if you were an artist, one thing you could do is you could scrap the whole canvas and just say, I'm going to give up on the whole thing. But that's not what Kathy did. She wasn't totally pleased with how it had turned out. So what she did is she covered it over, and then she started experimenting 
with color and she was laying down on this color. And I kept walking by going, that is so beautiful. Can I please have that for my office? And she was like, no. But I kept bugging her. I kept bugging her. I told her, I promise I'll never show this to the church. I lied. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And finally I convinced her. And here's why I'm telling you that this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. There's an image under the image that does come through through texture and otherwise. There's an image underneath this beautiful painting. This is a metaphor for the people of God. Did you know that there was a point in the history of salvation where God could have given up on the people of God? He could have stepped back like an artist and said, this did not turn out the way that I was wanting it to. And he would have been justified to throw the canvas away and go in a different direction. But that's not what God did because God is a God of mercy. Instead, what God did is he said, I'm going to breathe new life into this people that are spiritually dead. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to recreate them. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what Luke 6 is about. Will you turn there with me now? See, Luke is ready now to show us something about Jesus that we've not actually seen yet in our study. So much of what we've learned about Jesus has to do with individual salvation. But what Luke is going to show us today is a vision of the Christ who came not just to save individuals, but to save a community, to recreate a community so that it would become new, so that it would become the masterpiece that God had always intended. That's what Luke 6 is about. Will you look at it with me starting... In verse 12, it begins with Jesus actually out in the wilderness on a mountain praying. Here's what Luke tells us. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And this was something, just put your finger there, this is something that Jesus did regularly. So when you read the Gospels, you'll see this again and again, Jesus going out into the wilderness, seeking God in prayer. But what's different this time is this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus stays up all night and prays, which is interesting. The only time. Most of the time when Jesus went into the wilderness, he would get up early in the morning and he would go pray. But this time, for some reason, Jesus felt like he needed to devote a whole night. So he went out in the evening, probably after supper time, and he stayed up all night praying. I have very rarely in my life intentionally stayed up all night because I get sick to my, I don't feel good afterwards. You know, I did a couple college all-nighters and I always had an upset stomach, right? A couple times I stayed up with my girls because they were throwing up. I also had an upset stomach after that night. <laughs> but think about it. When's the last time you intentionally stayed up all night to do anything, let alone seek God in prayer? Why would Jesus do this? Well, apparently, whatever he was about to do next was absolutely critical. Jesus knew, I must tap in 
to the wisdom of God, the heart of God, and the purpose of God. I need to listen to God. You know, that phrase, if you look at it in verse 12, where it says, all night he continued in prayer to God in the Greek, that phrase it indicates that the kind of prayer that was happening was not so much about what Jesus was saying to God, but what he was hearing from God. This was like the listening kind of prayer. You know those moments in your life where you have a critical decision, and maybe sometimes you've even thought, maybe I should take an entire night to see God on this one. I mean, we don't usually do that, but Jesus did. Whatever he was about to do was absolutely critical. What was it? It's in verse 13. And when he came down, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, the James of, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. It's this famous moment. We've heard this, we've heard this many times. We can even sort of imagine how it went down. Perhaps we've seen movies where they tried to depict it. You see Jesus, he's, he's been praying, he's on a mountain, he's been seeking God for wisdom, and he comes down from the mountain, and a sea of his disciples gather. Now, by this point, there might have been 75 to 100 people who had left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus walks through this sea of disciples, and he chooses 12 of them for something significant, okay? You can almost picture it. Jesus walking up to Peter, putting his hand, Peter, you're an apostle now. Coming to another guy, I don't remember your name. You're not an apostle. Oh, you know, he's, he's moving to the crowd. Judas, Judas, boy, you know, you're in. Okay, now listen. There's a question that's been haunting me all week. And the question is this. Why is Jesus doing this? He didn't have to do it. He had a 75 disciples. Why is he doing this? In fact, there are three questions that we'll have to answer today. We'll have to answer, we'll have to answer the question why, but we have, we have other questions, right? We have to answer the question, what? What are these leaders? What kind of leaders are they? What will they accomplish in the history of the church? And finally, who? Who are these 12 that Jesus has chosen? What can we learn about the heart of God from that? All right? This is what we do when we slow down and if there's anything I've wanted our church to experience in studying Luke is that we read so fast, don't we? We read over stuff and go, I get it. I know this. Well, wait, do I though? Why is Jesus doing this? Why? 
So look back at your Bible, and let me tell you, the key to the question why is the context. Luke wrote an orderly account because Luke was a physician, so everything is put in exactly the right order, and it is not a mistake that he put this story right after a story where the current spiritual leadership fail to lead well. Have you ever thought about that? What happened last Sunday? Jesus shows up to declare, I'm the son of man. Remember that? We talked about what the son of man means. He's there, and the spiritual leadership of Israel are there, the Pharisees, and what do they do? They fail to represent God because now they have God's representative, the son of man who has come. And not only has he come, but in that moment, he gives irrefutable evidence that he is God's chosen son of man by healing. And what do these leaders do? They harden their hearts and they reject Christ. And so what does Jesus do? He says, does he give up on the whole project? Does he take the canvas and throw it out? No. Jesus says, I'm going to do something new. And the very first step is I need to choose new leadership. I need to choose new leadership. Now, the number 12 is not an accident. You see it there. He comes down, he called the disciples, and he chose from them 12. That number for an Israelite would have sent off all of these memories. It would send them back to the Old Testament. It anchors this moment in the history of the the original moment when God chose a people. He redeemed them out of slavery. They became his people, Israel. And how did he organize the people of Israel? He organized them into how many tribes? Twelve tribes with 12 leaders, the 12 sons of Jacob. So there's all this Old Testament imagery. There's even imagery of Mount Sinai. Here you've got Jesus going up a mountain. Then you had Moses going up a mountain, bringing down the heart and the wisdom of God. Jesus comes down and just next week, we'll start the Sermon on the Mount. But right now what's happening is you're seeing that the whole story is connecting. God's not giving up on his people, he's going to recreate his people with new leadership. And the number 12 is incredibly symbolic. It anchors our story as the church in the story of God. So interesting. Why would God do this? Let me tell you. River West, we serve a God who does not give up on stuff just because it gets messy. That's the kind of God we serve. He doesn't give up just because it gets a little messy. Isn't that good news? It's good. It's, you should be thinking this is really good news because I'm a mess, right? And I'm thinking that. God does not give up just because it gets a little messy. And let me tell you something. That is really good news. You don't give up on stuff that matters even when it gets messy. You don't give up on marriage just because it gets a little messy. Marriage matters. I've never met a parent who gave up on their kids because their kids got messy. 
Kids get messy. Let me tell you something. They are gross sometimes. Kids, you don't give up on your kids because they're messy, right? When I was a young man and Kath and I were talking about whether we were going to start having babies, we had a young couple over from our church in Eugene, and they had just had a baby, okay? And at this point in my life, I was a lot more sort of obsessive, compulsive, kind of clean freak kind of a guy. And this dad was standing in my living room. I had just cleaned my hardwood floors. And he had his son, and he, he was holding his cradling his son, who was like three months, three months old. And he was sort of going like this with his little boy. And saliva <laughs> was coming out of his mouth like a sprinkler. It was just shooting across my, my clean... And I was like, that's disgusting. I mean, I was looking at him like, you're seeing what's happening here, right? This is a mess. And he would, just didn't even care because we don't care about that stuff. Kids are messy and we love them. We don't give up on them. And God will never give up on his church. He never will. He never will. In my life, the person in my life who drove this home probably more than any other person was our founding pastor, Guy Gray. If I learned from someone, you don't give up just because it gets a little messy. I learned it from Guy. Not only in my life, he never gave up on me, but I remember when I first came to River West in 2006, Guy and I drove out to the beach together for like a, a time of solitude. And he, he said, I, I want to tell you some of the stories of the history of the church. And let me tell you, for every story of something beautiful, there was a story of something hard, something messy. You're around the church long enough, you'll deal with difficult situations, difficult people. And I could hear in Guy's voice hurt at different points. But what I realized is he never gave up. He never, because he knew it's worth it. It's worth it. And this is the heart of our Heavenly Father. River West, God will never give up on his church. But here's the question, and I need to ask it to you. If God will never give up on his church, why do we sometimes? Why do, why do Christian people give up on church? Why do we do that? Now, sometimes it's hard, and sometimes church is uncomfortable and awkward and sometimes coming to church will can, will cause you to remember things that are painful. Sometimes you have to interact with people that make you feel frustrated. Sometimes things don't go exactly the way you want them to go in church. There are preferences that we have. But, but my question is, if God is committed to this until Christ returns, Shouldn't we be? Now, you may know someone who's given up on church, and maybe your assignment today is to go to them with this word from Luke and say, we cannot give up. It's too precious. It's too valuable. This is the center of the spiritual universe because Christ is here, and it's worth fighting for. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's why, but we have to answer the question, what? What kind of leadership are we talking about in this moment? What is this group and what will they accomplish? Well, there's a word in this 
passage. It's in verse 13, and it jumps off the page, and it should jump off the page because it's a word you've not seen before in, as you've read Luke. What is the word that I'm thinking of? What, it, what is the word I'm thinking of? Apostles. Did you see it there? What did he do? He walked through a sea of disciples, and he chose 12 whom he named apostles. What is an apostle? <laughs> Yesterday or two days ago, Bridget and I were talking and, and we were, she was asking me about the passage and I, and I explained the story and she was like, wait, what? Apostle? She's like, aren't, weren't they disciples? Well, like, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? And I said, ding, 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 ding. You got to come back on Sunday and hear the sermon. (laughs) Okay? These are the questions you should ask while you're reading the Bible. Wait a minute. What is an apostle? Do I know what this means? Do I understand why Jesus has done this? At its most basic level, this word simply means someone who is sent. It means a sent one. And in the New Testament, the word is used kind of in a lowercase sense, for anyone who is sent out as a missionary or who goes out to represent someone else with authority. And in, in that sense of the word, there, there were lots of people who functioned something like an apostle. But here's the thing. When you read Luke 6, you discover that th- these 12 apostles are, are unique Like if the Greek had uppercase letters, which it doesn't, this word would probably be apostles with an uppercase A. And when you study Luke and then you study the book of Acts, that hunch gets confirmed. These 12 are specifically chosen by Jesus for a unique and unrepeatable task in the history of the church. It was a critical moment. Jesus said, I don't want to scrap the canvas. I want to create something new. And in order to lay a solid foundation, I need to pick new leadership. They're going to be significant. They'll do something unique. And once they've done it, it won't need to happen again. It will be unique and unrepeatable, but it's it's critical. It's critical. So what was it? There are four things you need to know about the 12 apostles. I'm going to put them on a screen, and you can take a picture of this with your iPhone if you'd like to, but you were going to do it anyway, so I didn't need to give you permission. Okay? Four things you need to know. Number one, these 12 became Jesus' closest companions throughout his ministry. They were, they became the inner circle. In fact, in the Gospels, shorthand for them became the 12. Jesus and the 12. You're going to hear that over and over and over. And what Luke is telling us is it was these 12 who, who literally circled in around Jesus in closest proximity. They shared every meal with him. They had every conversation with him. They were there every time he taught. They literally watched Jesus do ministry, and they learned through his way. So not only did they hear the words of Jesus, they absorbed the way of Jesus. How significant would that be? What would it have been like to be around Jesus of Nazareth? Wow. It would change the way you behave. How could it not? 
to be that close to the Son of Man, everything about your behavior would become like him. Have you ever been around someone who's so compelling and, they're, and they have such a, a joyful or they have something about their temperament that's so beautiful that, that you want to be around them because you know the longer you're with them, you'll become like them. This was this moment. My friend Marianne Nowak, Pastor Marianne, she's the most composed person I've ever met. She's just so composed. And so I want to spend as much time with Marianne as I can. I want to be composed like Marianne. My friend Christopher Kaufman is the most convicted, passionate person. I love him. You get Christopher talking about people or justice or mission, and he gets so fired up, so convicted. I want to be like him, just like him. When Christopher gets really fired up, he makes this formation with his finger that we call the claw of conviction. And it's awesome. And, he, and on Friday, we were having lunch, and he, I was absorbing his conviction, and I started talking, and I, like, I made the claw of conviction. I was like, yes, he's rubbing off on me. Imagine what it would have been like to spend three years with Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. You would become like him. And Jesus chose 12. Secondly, they were the eyewitnesses to his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And they had to be. This was critical. There was 12, but there were many other eyewitnesses, but the 12 had to be eyewitnesses. That will become critical when we get to number four. They had to be eyewitnesses. In fact, Judas Iscariot died near the end of the gospel accounts for his betrayal. And there were 11 And you know what happened in Acts chapter 1? One of the very first things they did, the very first order of business, is that Peter stood up and said, okay, we're down to 11, but it's got to be 12. And so they had this pool of other people who are eyewitnesses, and they said, we need to pick, we need to get back to 12. And the criteria that matters, go read it later, Acts chapter 1, the criteria is this person must be an eyewitness to the resurrection. And then they, they drew straws, and then they prayed, Lord Jesus, you choose who we're supposed to pick. So Jesus got to choose the 12th again. And then they were back to 12. Interesting. And then thirdly, this, this 12 then were there at Pentecost. The Spirit fell, and they became the nucleus. They became the core leadership of the early church, the mother church. In Jerusalem. It was these 12. These 12, there were other leaders, but there was a core, and that core was there to guard the church, to protect the church. They served in a, a critical function. Now, because you're probably already getting ahead of me, you know that very soon after this, the risen, glorified Christ appeared to another man and chose him to become the 13th apostle. Who, what was his name? Paul. Paul the apostle, Saul, who became, for Jesus, the apostle to the Gentiles. 
In Jerusalem, you had 12 who formed the core nucleus of the leadership of the mother church. And then Jesus said, but, but this church will spread. This church will go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to pick an, a 13th apostle. I'm going to appear to him and demonstrate. He will be a witness to the resurrection. Now, this caught Paul off guard. He couldn't believe it. In fact, he described himself as the least of the apostles, right? Paul said, I was like one who was born at the wrong time because <laughs> Jesus showed up first to all the 12 and then he showed up to me as one who just, I, I showed up on the scene at the, at the wrong time. And that will become important for number four. And this, this one really is critical. It was the apostles whom Jesus entrusted with the truth of the Christian gospel. Jesus said, I want to rebuild a new community. And it's a community that's got to last. It's a community that has to be strong. It's a community that needs truth. It needs a foundation. Jesus dreamed of a kind of a community that would continue in strength. He had 2019 in a sleepy little town in Oregon called Lake Oswego in his mind. And he knew the only way that my church will be strong when that day comes is if there is a foundation that is solid. And he chose apostles whom he entrusted with the gospel. He, it was to the apostles first that he said, I'm, when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And what will that Holy Spirit do? He'll guide you into truth. He'll remind you of everything that I've taught you. Why? so that the apostles would guard it, preserve it from distortion, and ultimately write it down so that the church would have a record of everything they needed to know about Jesus Christ. You see, it was the apostles who finished the Bible. They wrote the rest of, they wrote the New Testament. Did you know that every book in the New Testament is directly connected to one of the apostles? That's how the church knew. This is divine. Peter wrote letters. And then Peter had a traveling companion named Mark who listened to everything that Peter knew about Jesus and wrote the gospel of Mark. Isn't that interesting? John wrote the gospel of John and then he wrote letters and then he wrote the book of Revelation. Paul wrote 13 of the letters of our New Testament. And one of his closest friends was a physician who traveled with him for many years, whose name was Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Every book in the New Testament can be traced to the apostles. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew my church needs a foundation. It's solid. This is why Paul said in the book of Ephesians when he described the church, he said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. Amazing. you got to have a strong foundation. If you left today with one idea, this is what I'd want you to leave with. Confidence. I am a part. I am a part of a community that Jesus already envisioned in Luke 6. 
And he began to set in motion all of the steps that would be required for his church to grow and spread and have strength and have a foundation so that it would continue up to this present day. I get to be a part of that every time I come on Sunday. Amazing. Amazing. I hope that's what we think about when we come to worship. I hope it is. That's what they were. That's what the apostles were. So we've done why, we've done what, and finally, I want to talk just real quick about who. This will lead us into communion together. Who who were these 12? Who were these people? Why did Jesus choose them? So like when you look at the list, go back, look at verses 13 to 16. I don't know about you, but when I read the list, some of the names are very familiar to me. So I read Peter. Yeah, Peter. I know Peter. He was the leader of the church. In every list of the apostles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then in Acts, Peter's always listed first. He's the leader. I know Peter. And you read Andrew. Yeah, I kind of remember Andrew. That was Peter's brother. I know James and John. They're the sons of Zebedee. They're pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty familiar. And I know James and John and Peter were a part of an even tighter inner circle that Jesus took them to do some really unique things. But then you keep reading and you come across some names you're not so familiar with, like Bartholomew. Bartholomew? Really? Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you have to be honest. If I had quizzed you right when you came in, write down the 12 names of the apostles, would you have written down Bartholomew? Don't lie to me. It's church. <laughs> okay? All right? Unless you did like a wanna, then maybe you know it. But the reality is most of the names in this list are kind of anonymous. They don't even really show up after this. You don't ever hear of Bartholomew again. The name is almost not mentioned. Or Simon the Zealot. So it's, 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 it's fascinating because as, as a group, as the 12, they're critical. And the group and the number 12 are supposed to be seared in our conscience. But as individuals, we're supposed to think, these were like the, these were like the core leadership, but they were sort of anonymous. They kind of stepped into the background. And I think Jesus is saying precisely because it's really not about any individual human leader. It's, it's really, you know what it is it's about? It's about me, Jesus would say. It's about me. In fact, can I tell you something? I've noticed this in our world and in the church. Anytime a Christian leader longs too much for recognition, to build their brand, to be famous, to be known. The moment that happens, it seems like that becomes the moment when that church begins to unravel. Because it's not about human leaders. It's about the divine leader, Jesus Christ. You say, what is the thing that tied this group together? Were they, did they all have the same job? No, there were fishermen, a tax collector, a political zealot. So they didn't even have anything in common. Was it the fact that they were really powerful or famous or wealthy? Nope, most of them were poor, no names. 
Was it the fact that they were really qualified for spiritual leadership? Not really. In fact, the moment they start following Jesus, he realizes, I've got a lot to do, right? I've got a lot to do here. So they weren't qualified. They weren't impressive. They didn't have any credibility, and they were really diverse. What does that sound like? That sounds like the church to me. It sounds like the church. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying all of this keeps bringing the attention back to the person who called them. And that's me. Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory. And that's what happens next. So what I'm going to do here to close out is I'm going to read verses 17 to 19 and I'm just going to show you, I'm going to get you ready for what we're going to do next Sunday. So next Sunday, we begin the Sermon on the Mount, or it's Luke's, it's more on a plane. It's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people call it the Sermon on the Plain. We're going to go there next week. But, but have you ever noticed that right after Jesus chooses new leadership, you basically have a version of the very first church service? Look at it with me. Here's what happened in verse 17. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from where? From all over, from Judea, from Jerusalem, but also from this place up on the northern seacoast called Tyre and Sidon, which was enemy territory for Israelites. This was like our, our, our greatest enemies come from there. You have people from Jerusalem, people from Judea, people from Tyre and Sidon. And why did they come? They came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled and unclean, with unclean spirits were cur- cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And when I read that, I said, that's what we do every Sunday when we gather. Why do we come? We come to hear the words of Jesus. We come because we want to be healed. We need to be healed. Like the people in this moment, their their spirits are troubled. The world has pounded on them. There's, there's spiritual evil in the world and it, and it, and it unleashes its fury and, and this group of ragtag people. Some of them were disciples, learners. Some of them were seekers. Some of them had never met Jesus before, but they came because they recognized something's happening there. This is the center of the spiritual universe and I want to be a part of it. And what happened? Jesus taught and he healed and lives were transformed. And let me tell you something, River West. It's continuing to this day. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. I want to ask you, do you see Jesus' church the way he sees his church? Do you see it that way? And do you come with the kind of expectations on Sunday that, that Jesus has set us up for? It's right here in Luke. Now, next Sunday, Jesus is going to give away the wisdom of God for his new community that he's creating, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Come back next Sunday for that. But right now, let's pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Well, Father, we thank you for how much there is to learn. And we want to learn and we need to learn. It's critical for us to know who you are, who Jesus is, what Luke is trying to show us. We want to care about the church the way you care about the church, God. The whole story of the Bible can be understood as you creating a new people. Not disconnected from the old, but renewed and refreshed to carry out the original vision, which was to shine brightly in our world, to be a blessing to the nations so that the the light of the gospel would shine forth. We want that in our church, Lord. And we pray for it, Father. Will you teach us today not to give up on the church, Lord? Teach us to love it, we pray, because you love it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen.